passage this morning comes from Psalm 44, verses 1 to 3. God, we have heard with our ears. Our ancestors have told us the work you accomplished in their days and days long ago. In order to plant them, you displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. For they did not take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory. But by your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, because you were favorable toward them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of our salvation. And as we've been seeing time and time again in the book of Judges, that you are the hero of this story. And the same is true for us today. Father, left to ourselves, we would be helpless. But we look to you as the one who saves us, the one who redeems us, just as you did your people. We love you. We pray that we would sit now under your word as it is proclaimed to us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts and our minds. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. If you have your Bible, you can open to Judges chapter 6. We're going to start the, the story of Gideon. We're continuing our series, God is the Hero of this Story, through Judges. And today, the title of our message today is, The Lord is With You, which is all important. If you really stop and think about it, if you really stop and think about all the examples in the Bible, Old and New Testament, of God choosing someone, calling them, and equipping them, who do you have, really? Well, you got Moses, right? In Moses' case, he complained. When God chose him, he literally responded to God, I'm the wrong guy. You have the wrong person. I'm a stammerer. I'm not a good public speaker. I can't do the thing that you're calling me to do. You also have uh, David. Remember David's story. Uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, he comes to the house of Jesse. And he's told that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so he gets there, and there are just like six or seven just strapping Israelite boys standing there in line. Who's going to be the next king? And one by one, God tells them it's none of these. And so Samuel has to ask the question, do you have any more kids? Like, do you have any more sons? Well, there's that one out in the sheep field, but it surely it can't be him. And when David comes in, God says, he's the one, anoint him. The runt of the litter. And he's the one that God has chosen. You think of Esther. You, you think of this story of Esther, she just has nothing. She has no prospects. She has no pedigree. And yet God chooses her and then raises her up to be the queen of Persia and saves her people. Just a powerful story. You look at the New Testament, you think of Mary. I mean, Mary is not an elite person. She's a farm girl. She lives in a village, a humble little village. And yet God has chosen her to bring the Messiah into the world who will save the world of their sins. You think of Peter, a simple fisherman, not an elite he isn't a member of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't educated among the Pharisees or the scribes, and yet Jesus picks him and says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot withstand it. Think about that. And that's the kind of person we're meeting today, Gideon. And what made the difference in each of their lives was not their talent, their abilities, their wealth, and their past or the fact that, that they were born into privilege or prominent families, no. What made the difference was that God had chosen them 
and God was with them. And we're going to discover that that's what makes the difference with you and me too. My main thought today is very simply this. God accomplishes his purposes. God does what God is going to do. He does what he wants to do, and he accomplishes his purposes through people of his choosing who operate with his power, all for his glory, and thankfully for our good. Listen, God doesn't call individuals who are already qualified. God qualifies the people that he calls. And that's the story of Gideon today. And how does he do this? We'll, we'll discover it through five things. First of all, we'll discover that Gideon is a called man whom the Lord has chosen. And secondly, we'll discover that Gideon is a common man with no claims of greatness in himself nor personal strength. Thirdly, we'll discover that he's a converted man. When he meets the angel of the Lord and realizes that he's standing in front of God, it changes the trajectory of his whole life. And fourthly, we'll find that he's a consecrated man. He's obedient, and he rids the land of idols, and he raises up an altar to Yahweh, the true God. And lastly, we'll see that he's a confirmed man. God confirms through signs, and he confirms through a little skirmish what he's about to do in the next chapter or two. Let's look at Judges 6, 1 through 6. It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord handed them over to the Midian, Midianites for seven years. And they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and their, their friends, their pals, the, the Amalekites, the people of the east came and attacked them. And so they encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. But the Midianites came with their cattle in their tents like a, a great swarm of locusts, and they, they and their camels were without number. And they entered the land to lay waste to it, so Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord again. And this was the fourth time. You get the sense from the author, here we go again. This was the fourth time that Israel had forsaken their heritage, leading to their oppression. Now, imagine waking up to the sound of camel hooves stampeding through your village or your cul-de-sac, the screams of women and children echoing through the streets, and this was a common reality for these Israelites who were oppressed by Midian. And so Gideon's name, quite literally in Hebrew, means uh, the thresher. It means the hacker. Not, not like an internet hacker, but like the guy who threshes. And he is aptly named because that is also his job. And we find him faithfully doing his job, but in a very odd place. Verses 11 and 12, this is the angel of the Lord came, and he, he sat under the oak uh, that was in Ophrah. Apparently, there was just one. And uh, which belonged to Joash, the Abi Ezrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Why is he down in the wine press? Threshing is done on the hill for all to see, where the wind is high, and you can throw it and thresh it and separate the wheat from the chaff or whatever you're threshing. But now he's down below, down in the valley. He's in this quarried out wine press, so he's trying to eke out this meager existence. He's not supposed to be there, and that's where the angel of the Lord finds him. And the Lord says to him, 
The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And so we learn five things about Gideon. Number one, Gideon is a called man. We mentioned a few weeks ago back uh, that the angel of the Lord is likely a theophany or a Christophany. That just means an appearance of God or an appearance of Christ in bodily form in the Old Testament. That's what it means. And if you remember, the reason why we said that is because the angel of the Lord is the only angel in the Old Testament like God who receives worship, who is called God, and also speaks with God's direct voice. So in the Old Testament, he doesn't come like a prophet or he doesn't deliver a message from God. When he speaks, it's God speaking. And people speak back to him as if he is God, right? And so, and he also receives their worship. Now in the New Testament, Jesus does all three of those things. When Jesus never says, you know what I think God is saying to you? He never says that. When he speaks, he thinks it's God speaking. Uh, Jesus also receives worship from his disciples and from the early church. And Jesus has all the titles, the prerogatives, and all the power that is ascribed to God in the Old Testament. So this is why we think that this is really an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And so it is the Lord who is standing face to face with Gideon, though he doesn't really know that yet. He's not going to know that until a little bit later in the story. The thresher of Manasseh stands before the very Lord of glory himself, and he's not quite aware of who it is yet. God's calling is always accompanied in evidence by the promise of his presence. When he says, the Lord is with you, that is what makes sense of the next clause, the next line, mighty man of valor. Now, he's not joking around with him. He's not being ironic. He's not poking fun at this weak, fearful, timid person who's down in the wine press instead of up on the hill doing his job, who's hiding and making a meager uh, living for himself. No, he's not joking with him. He's saying, listen, you are a mighty man of valor if I say you are. You are if I'm with you. And when God is with you, there could never be a truer statement of you, never, that you're mighty in his power and that you have every reason to be bold and courageous in him because it's not up to us. And likewise, as Christians, we embrace our weakness because they draw attention. Those weaknesses draw attention away from our limits, limits and onto God's power and his glory. Look how Paul put this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Now, he's praying that God would take what he calls the thorn of the flesh away which is probably an ailment. It's probably a disease, an eye disease. He mentions this in Galatians chapter four, where he says, my sickness was so severe when I was among you that I would attest that you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me if you could have. So he's contracted some kind of eye disease, malaria something, that is causing him now to be under severe physical stress. He also mentions persecutions, insults, and all of that stuff just coming at him from every angle. So he's begged God three different times. He said, please take this thorn of the flesh away from me. And this is God's response. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. So he says, I take pleasure in weaknesses, pleasure, insults, hardships, persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is boasting not in his accomplishments, not in his strengths, 
not in his education, not in his, his achievements. Paul is here boasting in his weakness because he knows that in the midst of his weakness, that's when God is going to shine greatest. Do we often think like that? Our strength lies not in our innate capabilities or capacities, nor is it defined by our our achievements or endeavors. Rather, our strength of faith is in the assurance of what God has done for us and what he will do for us and in our election, in his choice of us. Romans 8, 28, he reminds us that we know all in all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. God works all things out for those who love him, who are loved by him, and who are called according to his purpose. And so the author of Gideon's story wants us to see that Gideon wasn't looking for God. He wasn't searching for God. He didn't think highly of himself. He didn't think he was a great man of faith or a man of skill or boldness. No, he has none of that. God, for his own reasons, calls the man, and God makes the man. Number two, Gideon was a common man. This leads us to point number two. Gideon naturally experiences doubt. Upon hearing the angel of the Lord's calling on his life, especially the business about Gideon the Lionheart, which surely must be a joke, but again, I assure you, it is not. That first line of the sentence, if that first line of the sentence is true, then the rest of it is true as well. He will be the man that God envisions him uh, to be. Look at verses 13 through 15. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? And where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned him, uh, to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian, I'm sending you, full stop. I just love the Lord's response. He doesn't even take the time to argue with them. He doesn't even take the time to answer his, his protest. He just says, go in the strength that you already have because I'm delivering them over to you. And he says, the Lord, uh, and says, uh, please, Lord, he said, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family's the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my family. I'm not even the oldest son. I'm not even supposed to go. And so Gideon essentially voices two objections that we can see in the text. First, you say the Lord is with me, he says, but how can he be with us in light of our circumstances? Don't we think that sometimes? Gideon naturally wants to know why it is that the God of wonders, that the God we've read about in Sunday school or heard about in church doesn't do those things anymore. Where is he? Does he, does he still part the Jordan? Does he still part the sea? Does he still do miracles? Because he doesn't seem to be doing very many for me right now. Where is he? And so the prophet and the people of old praise God for having brought the people out of Egypt, and they remind people of the story, of their family ancestral story. God did this for you. Don't you forget. And he wants to know what gives. Why doesn't God do that anymore? And secondly, he protests, how can a person like me be Israel's deliverer? I mean, look at me. Instead of threshing grain on a hilltop for all to see, I'm hiding down here in this quarried out wine press where no one can see me thresh and just eke out a living, an existence. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm not from a prominent family. Nobody even knows who I am. 
My family is not powerful nor prestigious. I'm the runt of the litter. I have nothing to offer you. And God just says, go. Go in the strength you have. And we could say a few things about his emerging doubts. The first one is he lived with them for quite some time. It seems like he had. Because his response is immediate. It's reflexive and precise. Looks like the kind of thing that he's been mulling over, thinking about for quite some time. We can also say that his doubt lacks perspective. Sure, he knows what God did for them historically. He knows what God did for them in the past, but he doesn't seem to know his most recent history. It seems like the angel of the Lord should reply to him, you want to know why it is that God is not doing these things for you right now? Go look in your dad's backyard. Your dad, who is a son of Israel, but who has become a priest of Baal, the false god of Midian. Go, go look in your dad's backyard. That's why. He seems to not be aware or not have a historical perspective of recent history and their failures. He also lacks knowledge. He's biblically illiterate on the finer points. Because Moses literally said in chapter 28 through 32 of Deuteronomy, listen, if you go into that land and you worship these false gods, here's what's going to happen to you. The locusts are going to come and they're going to swarm you and they're going to totally devastate the land and you'll be hiding in caves like a bunch of animals. Moses told them that. And here they are literally experiencing that. So he's not very biblically literate. But notice his doubt. His doubt wasn't terminal. Have you ever met someone who just was a terminal doubter? And maybe, maybe later in their life they get saved, that's great, but some people, man, it just seems like it doesn't matter how much evidence for the Christian faith you bring out before them and set before them and say, see, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, the Christian faith, you know, you give them the evidence and they just seem terminally skeptical. They will not believe. There's like a gene in them that just won't believe. I don't understand that. Well, that's not the kind of doubter that Gideon is. Gideon, yeah, he's struggling with doubt. He's struggling with self-doubt. He's struggling with wondering why they're in these circumstances that that they are right now. But he's not the kind of doubter who says, listen, I'm not open to any evidence at all. He's open-minded. If God could just show him, if God could just give him some signs here, he might believe that God has called him to be the man that God envisions him to be. Gideon's doubts were nourished by ignorance of Scripture and his history and fueled by his own assessment of himself. Is there anything more common than that? Is there anything more common than this shared experience among the fallen human race? We doubt what God can do, and we doubt whether or not we're the people who should do what he's called us to do, what he's asked us to do, because we doubt ourselves. Number three, Gideon was a converted man. He became a converted man. Now, I want, to, I want you to notice his conversion here. Now, in the New Testament era, in this era, after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, we typically talk about being converted as an act of regeneration. Regeneration is the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us and then transforming us from the inside out right? So we're talking about being born again, what Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a conversion of belief. He has a conversion of his belief system. He has gone from doubt to faith. Watch. 
Verse 16, the Lord assured Gideon of his presence and promised that he would defeat Midian as if he were one man, which is a way of saying, you'll do it easily in my power. And in response, Gideon requested a sign to confirm that he was truly speaking with the Lord. Gideon asked the Lord to wait, uh, to wait there. And so he ran, runs off and he grabs a gift. He goes back home and he gets some meat, right, some venison, and then he also uh, gets some unleavened bread. And he brings it back to the angel of the Lord. And this is what the angel of the Lord tells him to do with it. So the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, put it, put it on this stone and pour the broth on it. Just dump all the gravy on top, right? So he did that. And then the angel of the Lord extended the tip of, of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock, not from underneath the rock, but from the rock. And it consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So when Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, oh no, I have seen the Lord God. He said, oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Shalom. He called it the Lord is peace. It is still in Ophrah of the Abi Ezrites today. So the flames ignited, the altar burned up everything on the altar. Now in the ancient world, this means your, your sacrifice is accepted, your gift is accepted. God accepts it. And then right there in front of him, the angel of the Lord, the Lord in bodily form, vanishes in front of his eyes. And he comes to the sudden realization that he is standing and he has been talking to the Lord God. Now, your translation may say Lord God or something like that, but in Hebrew it says Adonai, Yahweh, Lord, Lord, the Lord of Israel is standing before me. And he is terrified because he realizes he stood face to face, face with God. Most often when the Old Testament speaks of God's face, it is referring to his presence. It's a way of talking about God's presence in our midst. And you don't see the face of God unless it's filtered. And you gotta have one of three things, man. You gotta have a veil. <laughs> you know, you got to have some kind of filter. So when in the Old Testament it said that Moses speaks to God face to face, that was in the tabernacle where the Shekinah glory sort of hid the radiance of God's presence so he didn't just drop dead, right? So the glory is the filter at that point, or you have to speak with God, God's presence face to face in the angel of the Lord like this. Now, he's not particularly biblically literate, but he does know his Old Testament enough to know that if you see the Lord's face, you're going to die. Because he remembers, probably remembers, that story back in Genesis 32. Remember Jacob who wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night, and then when he won the contest, when he came through, he's absolutely astonished that he didn't die. Because he saw, he says, I saw the Lord face to face. And remember Moses. Moses, Moses who has spoken with God face to face through the cloud, through the glory cloud, always filtered in Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, he finally gets to that point and God says, what do you want? And he says, I wanna see you face to face. No, not the cloud, I wanna see you. And God says, I can't, no, I can't do that. I can't give you that. 
unless you want to die. So God says, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll pass by. You'll see my glory pass by and I'll hide your eyes from me as I pass by and then you'll see my back, the back of my head or something like that. And Moses says, okay, I, I can live with that. And so in the Old Testament, people could only see God through the glory, the cloud, or the image of the Old Testament angel of the Lord. And that was God's revelation of himself in a way that wouldn't cause them to just keel over. And in the Christian life, I want you to notice who is the glory and who is the angel of the Lord, who is the image of the Lord. I want you to see it. First Timothy 6, 15 through 16 says, He, God, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. So we are dealing with the Hebrew God. We are dealing with the God of the Old Testament who lives in unapproachable light and no one can approach him. No one can come and no one can look him directly in the face unless, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 7, in their case, the pagan Gentiles, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let the light shine out in darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us, who is Jesus. He's the glory and he's the image. And if you want to see God, you can look through him. You can see God by looking at Jesus. Notice Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken. He has come to speak in finality through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance, the effulgence, the outraying of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact embodiment instantiation of God's perfect, glorious nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? You can, but you got to come through Christ. Who is the glory? Who is the glory? Who is the image? And would we look at the gospel of the glorious face of Jesus? When we look into the face of Jesus, we are looking at God. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father in action. And so this is why we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our conversion begins with the right confession. And it is through Christ that we look into God's glorious face. And Gideon's conversion, similarly, began with a right confession. He is, he has been talking to the angel of the Lord, who is Adonai, Yahweh, Number four, Gideon was a consecrated man. Gideon became a consecrated man. Now, there is no more important attribute or trait that Gideon could have than this. He obeys. Well, he may not be a man of great faith. He may not be a man of great character or a man with a wonderful religious pedigree 
or a heritage. But when God tells him to do something, he does it. Notice in verses 25 through 27, on the very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old, which probably symbolizes the seven years of oppression they've experienced under, under the Midianites. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah totem or the pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it at, the day, at daytime, he did it at night. So you see, you see, he still has some fear, very palpable fear. He's worried about blowback. He's worried about the consequences of doing this in broad daylight. But he does obey. He does obey. And so Gideon is given a smaller task. He is to tear down the altar of Baal. Ball and the Asherah totem beside it. Notice where it is. Where is it? Dad's backyard. It's in Dad's backyard. This is supposed to be an Israelite, a worshiper of Yahweh, the one true God, and it's in his, it's in his field, it's in his garden. And so idolatry has come home. And and when the townsfolk show up in the story, they are furious. They 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 want to kill him for doing this. One, because they're afraid of the Midianites, but they're more afraid of Baal. They're more afraid of their, the, the curses that Baal will bring upon them, right? They're afraid of that. And so when they see that Gideon has done this, they're, 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 they go sideways on him. And they go to Joash, and they demand that Joash drag him out and hand him over so they can kill him. Now, Joash has something of a conversion himself. He, he goes to bat for his son. And he says, no, no, no. Listen, if Baal is real, right, if this God of Midian is real, then let him defend himself. Why are you here to contend for him? And so when Baal doesn't kill Gideon, the people realize their folly. They realize this is bunk. And so then they rename Gideon Drew Baal. That's a wonderful, name, that, name your kids that, Josh and Gracie. Jerubal. And it means, uh, it means uh, Baal can contend with him. That's what it means. If you're real, then you come and you contend with this guy. You fight against this guy. Why should we do it? And so what's the point of this story? We're here dealing with an altar to a wicked sex god and to his attending god, Asherah. And while these false gods may not have stone altars and physical shrines that exist today, I assure you, they're still around. Make no mistake about it. These gods haven't gone anywhere. They've just morphed into new realities. The gods of leisure and perverted pleasure. The gods of self-actualization and self-fulfillment at all costs. The gods of individual autonomy, totally divorced from any external authority, the Bible, natural law, or even my own body. You name it. We have plenty of gods today, don't we? 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 17, this is what Paul says to the church. He says, what agreement does Christ have with Belial? Belial is another name for Satan or the devil. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? 
And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and, and therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will, I will welcome you. If we are the temple of the living God gathered in this assembly, then what fellowship do we have and does the Holy Spirit have with the doctrines of demons or the practices of this world? And this is what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians. None. Gideon's immediate response is to obey the angel of the Lord and tear down the altars to the false gods and erect an altar to the one true God. Folks, we must, we must find our idols and we must rid our lives of those idols. And we must be consecrated to the Lord, devoted to the Lord alone, and worship and serve God alone. Number five, Gideon was a confirmed man. Having been tested, tried, and approved in a a limited field exercise that gets him ready for the big dance with Midian. Verses 39 through 40, Gideon then said to God, don't be angry with me, but let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test, this time with a fleece. And, and I'll put the, here's what he says he's going to do. He's going to put the fleece on the ground. He said, and let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. And that night, God granted his request. God did what he requested. Only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. So this notorious fleece incident in Gideon's story was intended for him to get closure on a couple things, a couple things. First of all, am I really the guy? <laughs> like, are we sure here? Are we sure that it's Gideon who's going to go to war with 40,000 troops, the innumerable hordes of Midian? I mean, are we sure about that? And are we sure that's the plan? <laughs> like, are we sure that's the plan of redemption? And so he needed this confirmation to know who he was, who God has made him, who God has called him to be, and also what God's plan in his life and for the Israelites was. And today, we don't put fleeces before God, do we? Now, on occasion, you'll see someone who will say, I just put a fleece before the Lord. Well, I want to encourage you, do not do that. Usually when people do that, they're trying to discover God's will. But notice in the story, Gideon already knows God's will. So we don't do that, why? Because we already have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us. God has poured out on the day of Pentecost his spirit, and his spirit has been poured out on the church, young and old, male and female, the socially advantaged and the socially disadvantaged. You name it, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. But that doesn't mean that our faith doesn't have confirmation because we are confirmed in the Christian faith in the New Testament by a few things. And the first one that we see in the New Testament is we make the good confession. We make the good confession. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord or Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What is Paul talking about here, this confession? It's not just the words, Jesus is Lord. Anyone could say that. Anyone could say those words. It's the content of those words. What those words mean in the New Testament. They mean that Jesus has been crucified. He has risen bodily from the dead. He has been exalted 
to the highest heavens, the scripture says, to the right hand of the throne of God. When we say Jesus is Lord, it means that Jesus has been exalted above all things and there is nothing that is not under his lordship, officially anyway, right? So we are talking about the son of God who is God the son exalted to David's throne. And that's what we're talking about. So it's making the good confession. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians, no one speaking by the Holy Spirit would say Jesus is cursed. And that's a confession, that Jesus is cursed or damned. And no one speaking by the Holy Spirit, and everyone who does speak by the Holy Spirit will say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You can't say that but by the Holy Spirit. So we make the good confession. Listen, if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life, it will bubble up in a right confession. We're also confirmed by spiritual enabling for service. Paul tells the Corinthians this. Chapter 1, 5 through 7, he says that you are enriched in him. I praise God that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and in all knowledge. Now, he's going to take up those very spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14 to bring correction. But right now in chapter 1, he says the spiritual gifts the Lord has put in your life are confirmation. He says in this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not like any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. If you show me a church that is focused on anything other than being equipped by the teaching and preaching of the word so that individual members can be, can be enabled, equipped for service with their spiritual gifts to build up Christ's body, I'll show you a church that's just gotten off track. They need the confirming witness, the confirming testimony of the gospel confirmed by the enabling presence of God in their midst to equip the saints for ministry. And I'm a a little disturbed when I see Christian celebrities, certain pastors and mega churches, and they become these celebrities, and thousands of people will show up to their churches, and they sit there fastidiously with their Bible and their notes, and they take notes because they love that guy's teaching, that guy's so anointed, and all they talk about is that guy and they don't do anything in the church. They think that being spiritually enabled for service is sitting there just going to Bible studies or or listening to someone's expository preaching. I'm here to tell you that's not what that person is there for. That preacher is there to equip the saints for ministry. And God confirms his gospel through enabling gifts of service so that the body of Christ may be built up in the most holy faith. The next confirming things that we see in the New Testament are the good works that follow grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Memorize this whole passage. Know where it is. Tell your friends. Tell your neighborhood. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. What? Salvation, grace, and faith. None of that is of you. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and it's not a result of works. Now, if Paul wanted to say to the Ephesian church or to you and I that salvation is a free gift from God that we didn't give ourselves but that God gives us and that it comes by God delivering it to the open and empty hands of faith and it is not by any works that we could do to earn his favor, could he say it more (laughs) just clearer than that? He can't say it clearer than this. I don't know how he could. And he says it's not the result of works, so that no one could stand before God and boast. But he says, for we are God's work. We are his work. 
created, just like Genesis 1. Adam and Eve didn't ask to be created. God just did it because he wanted to do it. And God created us in Christ, and we are his work, not our work. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And if I may be so bold, many of us today, we have, I would venture to say that we have a very solid theology of salvation by grace through faith apart from works. But do you have a solid theology of works? Do you have a solid theology of works being the confirming factor that God now, by the gospel, has poured his truth out into your life? I hope you do. We are God's work, created in Christ Jesus for holy vocation. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, make every effort to confirm your calling and election so that you can make sure that you don't lose your salvation. He doesn't say that. He says, so that you will never stumble. Has anyone never stumbled? How many of you have stumbled? Just quick show of hands. Yeah, 100%. If you're a believer in this Christian life, you're going to stumble. stumble. And what he's saying is, listen, do everything you can to confirm your election and calling. That is God electing you, God choosing you. Do everything you can to, to show people that that is true. And if you did, you would never stumble. Good luck with that. (laughs) Gideon needed a fleece. He needed a sign. He just needed one more confirming sign for God to say, okay, sure, I'll give you that too. Are you convinced now? But you don't need that because you have the presence of God himself, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who lives inside of you and who, who is working and willing in you and through you to live the Christian life. And so we make the good confession. Have you made the good confession? Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is God's son and he's the son of God and and he is God the son. And he alone has purchased our salvation through his atoning work on the cross. And not only does he enable us by the Holy Spirit to make the right confession, He has also enabled us by the Holy Spirit to do the good works which he prepared in advance before the foundation of the world for us to do. And so here's my main thought today. Here it is again. God accomplishes his purposes through people of his choosing who operate in his power for his glory and thank the Lord for our good. (laughs) Everything that we do for his glory, in his power, for his purpose, is for our good. It benefits us. Amen? Okay, listen. God doesn't call qualified people. Anybody qualified? He qualifies the people he calls. That's the message. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this chapter. Thankful for this story of Gideon. We don't know much about him, but we do know that he struggled with doubt and his doubts weren't terminal. But he just kept bringing it to you. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubt, some doubts you have in your heart, some doubts you have in your mind, listen, it's, it's not over. <laughs> you just turn it over to the Lord. Keep bringing it back to God. Keep asking the Lord for encouragement and strength. Keep going back to the word becoming as biblically literate in the word as you possibly can. And Lord, we we give you our doubts today. Everything that we struggle with, Lord, we know 
that you have it in your hand. We know that you have the power to overcome, and we are more than conquerors, but only in Christ Jesus. And God, we thank you for the message of this story, that you don't wait for us to get our act together, you don't wait for us to qualify ourselves for you, but you do the qualifying of the people who are called by your grace and your presence. And Father, would you make us a holy church with a holy vocation. Help every single member, every person in this congregation to also become a minister enabled by the Holy Spirit's power and his gifts to build up the body of Christ. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to that as well. And we thank you for this message today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.